Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Alan Cross, and this summer we thought we would do something special with the Ongoing History Podcast and give you, our fantastic audience, a bonus episode from now through Labor Day. We're going all the way back to the spring of 2010 and a 15-part deep dive into the history of alternative rock. It's the History of Alt-Rock series. So every Sunday you'll get a brand new episode of this series that examines every single facet of alt-rock from the 1950s right up to, well, pretty much today. And don't worry, because we'll have a brand new episode of the Ongoing History Podcast for you every Wednesday as well. So you're getting two podcasts every week, now through Labor Day. I hope you enjoy. And thanks for supporting the Ongoing History of New Music. To fans of any kind of rock, May 18th, 1999 seemed like the end of the world. The Backstreet Boys released their new CD that day, It was called Millennium, and on that first day, it sold more than 500,000 copies. By the end of the week, it had sold 1.134 million, a new all-time sales record. And those are just the U.S. numbers. You add in the rest of the world, and the total was much higher. And it was only going to get twice as bad. Just 308 days later, NSYNC, another bloody boy band, set an even scarier record. By the end of its first week in the stores, their No Strings Attached album sold 2.4 million copies. And then just 56 days after that, Britney Spears sold half a million copies of Oops, I Did It Again on day one, and 1,319,193 in its first seven days. When the dust cleared at the end of 2000, it was very clear that vacuous pop music had taken over the universe. These CDs weren't selling just by the tens of millions, they were selling by the hundreds of millions. In second place was rap and hip-hop, thanks to people like Eminem, Nelly, and Dr. Dre. The biggest selling rock records of the year were from, uh, well, they were from Creed and uh, Santana and uh, a Beatles compilation that featured songs that were more than 35 years old. The prognosis for rock was not very good. If rock, all rock, wasn't dead. It was at least very, very ill. And unless somebody did something, it looked like it was all over. This is chapter 14 of the complete history of alt-rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the second to last chapter in our broad survey of the history of modern rock, alt-rock to some. Let's review. We've just turned the corner into 2000, and frankly, it does not look good. The dominant form of music on the planet is pop music, led by boy bands and jailbait female singers. Rap and hip-hop are incredibly strong, incredibly popular, and can be heard booming out of car stereos everywhere. A third choice would be all the flavors of electronica. Rock, especially alt-rock, had apparently reached some kind of a dead end. 
the grunge heroes had either broken up, checked out, moved on, or died. Britpop was finished, and new metal? Well, it was doing all right. I mean, Limp Bizkit sold 4 million records in 2000, and Papa Roach sold close to 3 million, but the sound and the attitude of new metal was just so polarizing that it could only go so far. Typical of the species was a band like Korn. Corn with Falling Away From Me from their Issues album, which was one of the bigger alt-rock records of 2000. Now, with apologies to fans of Corn and new metal in general, it was a bad time to be a fan of alt-rock, especially for younger fans who may not have realized that this was all just part of a cycle. See, since the birth of rock in the 1950s, rock and pop have been locked in a battle where each combatant is 180 degrees out of phase with each other. What this means is that when rock was on the ascendant in terms of creativity and popularity, pop was on the descendant. Eventually, rock peaks, starts to degrade, and at the same time, pop begins to gather strength until it too peaks, and then things fall apart and the whole thing repeats itself. This is a dance that has played itself out many times since 1951, and each of these cycles lasts about 13 years. And if there's one thing that's been proven over and over again, it's that rock is very good at resurrection. Let me lead you through things, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. For many people who study this stuff, ground zero for rock and roll was March the 3rd of 1951. That's the day Ike Turner and his Kings of Rhythm recorded a song about an Oldsmobile for Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats. The song was called Rocket 88, and for many musicologists, that was the first true rock and roll record. If cycle one begins there, it peaked with Elvis in 1956. The denouement began on March 2nd of 1958. That's the day Elvis enlisted in the army and rock and roll lost its king. And without the king, rock entered this period of decline that lasted well into the 1960s. And during this time, many record executives declared that rock had been nothing more than a fad. Conventional wisdom was that everybody could go back to making real music with real artists like Frank Sinatra. Then came the Beatles, a band famously rejected by at least one record label, Decca, because they felt that guitar groups were on the way out. And here's another quote, the Beatles have no future in show business. Isn't that amazing? Cycle 2 began with the Beatles' legendary appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show on April the 9th of 1964. That was just three weeks shy of the 13th anniversary of the recording of Rocket 88. Now, the Beatles, of course, rescued rock, created this tsunami that spread across the planet, and it lasted the rest of the decade. This second cycle peaked at Woodstock six years later, August of 1969, and began its slide following the bad vibes and death at Altamont, another music festival, that December. Creatively spent and disillusioned by the failure of the hippies' peace and love approach to change the world, not to mention, let's see, Watergate and the bad end to the Vietnam War and the Cold War and the Arab oil crisis and a bad recession and the fact that the children of the 1960s had grown up and moved on, we slipped into this period of nostalgia for music of the 1950s. It was all American graffiti and happy days and sha-na-na and Elton John singing Crocodile Rock in 1972. 
Meanwhile, the aging hippie generation couldn't believe that the generation following them seemed to be totally entranced by simplistic pop made by David Cassidy and Bobby Sherman and the Bay City Rollers. And yes, the Stones and Led Zeppelin were huge during this time, but they were the exception. And people tend to forget that in the early 1970s, the critics absolutely hated Led Zeppelin. They despised them. The third cycle was a reaction to the mediocrities of the early 1970s. Fed up with the state of music, a new generation embraced punk rock. Punk rose from the streets of New York and London through 1976 before exploding in March of 1977 when the Sex Pistols tried to release God Save the Queen. Now, we have talked about this on this series. Remember the contract signing ceremony with Virgin Records on March 10th, 1977? If you're keeping track, that's 13 years and one month after the Beatles' appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show and almost 26 years to the day after Rocket 88 was recorded. Punk and New Wave helped us through disco and paved the way for the music video generation. But by mid-1984, rock had once again blown itself out. As Huey Lewis and Whitney Houston propelled pop to the top of the cycle, many rock fans turned to the 60s and 70s, creating an insatiable market for what was now being called classic rock. The new rockers, Poison, Motley Crue, Quiet Riot, were really more flash than substance. It looked especially bad through 1988 when it looked as if the future belonged to new kids on the block and Tiffany and Debbie Gibson and the same rock is dead cries that we heard in 1960 and 1972 were trotted out once again. The first indication that a fourth cycle was starting was at a riot at a Depeche Mode autograph session in Los Angeles on March the 20th of 1990. That's 13 years and 10 days after the Sex Pistols' infamous contract signing ceremony outside of Buckingham Palace, the event that led to the whole God Save the Queen controversy. It was also 26 years after the Beatles showed up on Ed Sullivan and 39 years after Rocket 88, plus or minus just a couple of weeks. Things picked up very quickly in the spring of 1990. There was the rise of Manchester in the UK and the beginnings of grunge in the US. And by the fall of 1991, rock was once again grinding pop music into the dirt. And as we've discussed in previous chapters, the bridges built by Nirvana's Nevermind album resurrected rock and roll in the image of Generation X. The peak for this cycle came shortly before Kurt Cobain's suicide in 1994. And we knew it was all going to hell when Metallica hijacked the headliner spot on the 1996 Lollapalooza tour. Within two years after that, boy bands and Pop-Tarts ruled. The alt-nation had grown up and moved on and were supplanted by Generation Y's taste for the Backstreet Boys and Britney and so on. As always, live by demographics, die by demographics. And this brings us to where we started this show, the whole rock is dead thing. Rock wasn't dead, of course. The cycle was just playing itself out again to its logical conclusion. As always, music had to get so bad that someone somewhere had to say, right, that's it, I'm going to fix this myself. We're just never really sure from which direction the help will come. This is where we need to acknowledge a couple of older bands. The first is the Red Hot Chili Peppers. They had peaked too soon in the 1990s, and by the time the whole alt-nation thing was in full swing, they were back to having guitarist problems. Their 1995 album, One Hot Minute with Dave Navarro, ex of Jane's Addiction, of course, was considered to be inferior to what they had accomplished with John Frusciante and Blood Sugar Sex Magic four years earlier. But by the beginning of 1999, John was back with the band, 
and the resulting album was one of the greatest comebacks of the decade. It was the Peppers' biggest selling album to that point, sold more than 15 million copies, won them a Grammy, and it was called Californication. The Red Hot Chili Peppers, with the title track of their Californication album, released on June 8th of 1999. The other old band that we must acknowledge is U2. They were miserable failures at rescuing rock with their pop album in 1997, and frankly, they knew it. That's why they went back to doing what they did best, being a rock band. That's what they were. Why deny it? So no wonder their next album was called All That You Can't Leave Behind. It was October 31st, 2000. U2's All That You Can't Leave Behind came out as the pop cycle was starting to peak with Britney, Backstreet Boys, and NSYNC. However, it cut through. It got great reviews, sold over 12 million copies, and won seven Grammy Awards. So maybe rock wasn't dead after all. Maybe there was hope. Maybe there was going to be a fifth cycle. Hold on to that thought back in a second. This is chapter 14 of the complete history of alt-rock, and we're up to the point early in the first decade of the 2000s when a few people were beginning to wonder if rock wasn't dead after all. That U2 record was actually pretty good. Old school stuff like Octung Baby, so maybe it would kickstart something. But even if this latest resurrection was going to be real, it had to be driven by young people. Older bands could contribute, but they couldn't carry the burden of revitalizing rock. Indications that the fifth cycle was about to start up came from New York. As the city was still struggling with the aftermath of 9-11, an independent band was causing a buzz with their debut record. Put next to what else was being released, and it sounded very fresh, very raw, very exciting. Name of the band? The Strokes. The Strokes formed in New York, but first embraced in the UK and Europe. And in hindsight, their This Is It album became one of the foundations for the indie rock movement that we'd see later in the decade. But it wasn't just The Strokes. We need to mention another important indie band. Again, they were American, but they first found acceptance in the UK. I first heard about them when a guy in a London record shop slipped me a couple of albums in the summer of 2002 and said, these guys are going to be big. You watch. And by the spring of 2003, he was right. Again, compared to the overproduced slickness of pop, this was ragged and dirty and raw and analog. And by the end of the decade, the guitarist, this former choir boy from Detroit named Jack White, was considered to be one of the most important figures in all of rock. From a record called Elephant, released on April 1st of 2003, those are the White Stripes with Seven Nation Army. Okay, now let's go back to this theory of the 13-year cycle to see if it holds. Cycle 1 starts March 3rd, 1951 with a recording of Rocket 88. 
Cycle 2 starts 13 years later with the American TV debut of The Beatles on The Ed Sullivan Show, February 9, 1964. We put the start of Cycle 3 with the Sex Pistols signing their Virgin Records contract in front of Buckingham Palace on March 10, 1977. That was the thing that really kicked punk into high gear in the UK. The fourth cycle starts with the surprise Depeche Mode riot in Los Angeles on March 20th, 1990, again 13 years later, and that whole thing was on the eve of the release of the Violator album, which of course became this giant record. So here we are with the White Stripes. They have their breakthrough album right on schedule, April 1st, 2003, 13 years after Depeche Mode and Violator. From that spring onward, alt-rock began a surge to a new peak. And it was a big one. That's next. By the beginning of 2004, it was clear that rock was once again on the ascendant and pop was in decline. It was the fifth cycle in the rock-pop deathmatch. All the attention was starting to go to new artists influenced by the alt-rock of the 90s, which in turn was influenced by the underground rock of the 80s, which of course was a direct result of the punk of the 1970s. As we got into 2004, there was yet another success story that came from the U.S. by way of the U.K. An indie band from Las Vegas, of all places, who had an obvious love for music from Duran Duran and the Smiths and other groups from the 80s, was signed in the U.K. That led to a major label record deal, and out of nowhere, this record sold 8 million copies. They were the killers. Well, somebody told me. The Killers, with Somebody Told Me from their Hot Fuss album, released June 7th, 2004. Again, the reception and success of this album seemed to indicate that rock was on the upswing again. Meanwhile, U2 and the Red Hot Chili Peppers were entering new imperial phases of their career, and Green Day gave themselves a second chance. See, by the end of the 1990s, Green Day had run out of gas and were actually on the verge of breaking up. The only thing that saved them was an opening slot on a Blink-182 tour. Blink was really hot at the time, but their audience tended to be a little too young to remember what it was like with Green Day back in the days of the Dookie album. The reception they got on that tour and the success of a Greatest Hits album put out by their label at the same time gave the band the will to give it another good shot. Now, legend has it that they started on a record called Cigarettes and Valentines that was either stolen or wiped out in a hard drive crash, so they started again with everybody contributing whatever song snippets they had, no matter how short. Over a period of months, these snippets built into a rock opera. A rock opera? What a dumb idea. Didn't that go out with The Who in the 1970s? Well, maybe, but the public went nuts for it. 14 million copies, some Grammys, a DVD, a live album, and a spin-off musical. Who the fuck? Green Day, a band whose time had come again, thanks to the revival of rock that began in 2003, and they would ride the success of American Idiot for more than two years after its release on September 21st, 2004. By the spring of 2005, a series of other bands were experiencing big-time renaissances. The Offspring and the Beastie Boys were once hot again. Trent Reznor had successfully reinvented Nine Inch Nails. Rage Against the Machine had more or less been reborn as Audio Slave, with Chris Cornell of Soundgarden doing the singing. 
Meanwhile, Linkin Park was on their way to becoming the biggest-selling modern rock act of the decade, while the Foo Fighters hit their stride, and they were now capable of selling out just about any place they played. And there were a ton of new bands, too. Damon Albarn had left Blur behind and had created Gorillaz with comic book artist Jimmy Hewlett. They were selling lots of records. Franz Ferdinand's artsy Scottish approach was getting written up everywhere. And after years of obscurity, Modest Mouse started selling albums by the millions. The White Stripes got even bigger, and from Australia, we got Jet. And then there was Coldplay. After spending most of 2004 out of sight working on the follow-up to A Rush of Blood to the Head, they showed up with X and Y on June 6th of 2005. Now, third records are hard, especially for a band that had been working and touring as much as Coldplay. And it was a hard record to make, but in the end, they hit the cycle. And they sold somewhere around 14 million copies. The summer of 2005 was an embarrassment of riches. Rock, and remember this is music based on alt-rock heritage, ruled. Coldplay, Green Day, Foo Fighters, Nine Inch Nails, Linkin Park, Offspring, Beastie Boys, Gorillaz, Audioslave, Franz Ferdinand, The Killers, they all had hit albums at the same time. And U2 and the Chili Peppers were back. Both had worldwide hits. That summer was a lot like the summer of 1992. 13 years earlier, when the Alternative Nation and the Lollapalooza Nation and Britpop were all exploding simultaneously. It seemed that the good music and the great times would once again go on forever. But again, what goes up must come down, and down it went. By the time we got into 2006, the appetite for rock was beginning to wane, and pop music was once again in the ascendant. For rock fans, the only thing left to do was to ride it out. Or, or was there? An unprecedented thing happened during this fifth cycle of the rock versus pop battle. Technology has always been a driver of the way we create and consume music. But during this fifth cycle, we saw something completely new in terms of technology. It was so big that it might just shatter everything. In fact, maybe the Mayans got it right and the calendar will stop in 2012. We'll examine that on the 15th and final chapter of our complete history of alt-rock, and we're going to call that chapter New Rock in the Age of Downloading. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 